This is the record God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our worship time and his word. Father, we are thankful that we have you to come to, that you have have throughout all of eternity conceived of all that you would reveal to us, and it was known to you from all times, and, and that it is your revelation of yourself through the words of Scripture that we know uh, who you are, who we are, and all that you have provided for us. You have conceived of your word. You have revealed it through human beings in such a way that you protected it from error in the process of of its inscripturation and of its writing down and so that we can be confident that what we have in the original languages, it reflects your eternal truth. So, Father, we come to your word knowing that uh, as we come to your word that we will be challenged and confronted with with truth that conflicts with our uh, human uh, rebelliousness, the sinfulness of our of our nature, and that it is incumbent upon us to submit to your word that we might come to realize all that we are as you have designed us to be and to live a life that uh, the only way to, we can live that will provide true happiness, peace, and stability. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Several things are hap- happening this weekend, not the least of which, of course, in my return from uh, just returned from Israel, but tomorrow is Memorial Day. And so I want to just say, begin with a couple of things about the importance of observing uh, Memorial Day, and then I will give you a little brief report on the trip to Israel, and that's just a preface or foreshadowing of a lot that will come over the summer. Just to uh, let you know, last week was the longest month of my life. We got up every morning at 8 in the morning, and we wouldn't be back to the hotel until about 11 at night, and it was drinking water out of a fire hose would have been a relief. It was a, a huge information download, so uh, there, there's a lot to cover, and I'll spread that out over uh, mo- most of the summer. Memorial Day is a holiday that in this country came into uh, existence following the war between the states. There's a certain amount of competition over which city or town, town or village, uh, which region of the country originally uh, started to decorate the graves of those who fell in the uh, war between the states. 
Uh, it is most likely that it began in the South, where uh, the women, various women's groups were decorating graves before the end of the uh, Civil War. In fact, a hymn was published in 1867 entitled, Kneel Where Our Loves Are Sleeping, written by Nella L. Sweet, which carried the dedication to the ladies of the South who are decorating the graves of the Confederate dead. It is usually Waterloo, New York, that is cited as the uh, birthplace of uh, Memorial Day, and that was uh, indica- indicated or stated by President uh, Lyndon Johnson back in May of 19, uh, 1966. There was um, officially not a... Not an official. The first official proclamation came from uh, General Logan, in a uh, who was a president of a Veterans Army Association that came in 1868. So, this whole idea of decorating the graves with flowers uh, has a rich tradition. Having been in Israel during the last week, I had some additional little observations because Israel is a small country and because their existence is still an issue almost on a daily basis, there is a palpable difference in the way they think about their military and in the way they think about their fallen heroes. And if you don't know it, in in Israel, military service is is universal except for one small segment, about 10% of the population, and that's the uh, ultra-Orthodox and they do not participate uh, really within the state of Israel because according to their theology, it's not legitimate for Jews to return to the uh, land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob until the Messiah returns. And so they have basically been uh, part of society that is there enjoying the fruits of everyone else's labor, which is one of the major political issues going on today. But for most people, and as we were on this tour uh, there were a lot of references made to different areas, battlefields, uh, different heroes of the uh, war for independence. And also because that war for independence and their existence is so recent, there is much more of a, I think, a real heartfelt uh, attitude towards the uh, those who have given their lives for, for their freedom. I think it's also interesting that their Memorial Day is the day before their Day, their Independence Day, and I think that's an important juxtaposition that we we sort of lose here in our country. But it's like so many things in our country, we've come to a point where when we observe days of national significance, Memorial Day, Veterans Day in November, the uh, <clears throat> July Fourth Independence Day, Constitution Day, there is a disconnect with most citizens in this country, and we don't. Uh, take time to seriously reflect upon what these days, uh, what these days mean. And I think it's uh, important for us to do so and if possible to take time to teach your children, grandchildren about, uh, Memorial Day and its significance and if possible to make a family outing to go to the veteran cemetery and to participate in the, uh, decoration of the graves. Uh, with flowers, I used to for a short time when I, I would go down for a memorial conference, Memorial Day conference in D.C. Always enjoyed going with Pastor uh, Dan Ingram out to uh, out to Arlington National Cemetery on Memorial Day. Of course, I'd always take drag Dan off to the Confederate 
memorial there first. But he didn't exactly resist either. The uh, trip to Israel was quite a trip. It was uh, at a lot of different levels. A lot of the, the biblical sites that we went to, which was which were pretty standard, or most for the most part, places that I had uh, had been to before, and so I, that was not something new. But much of the trip was was related more to current events, current things going on in uh, in Israel. The high points for me of the trip which I'll expound on later on, and I also got some great video. We're trying to figure out how to convert some of it to where it will play on a Mac, and apparently my new my new camera take, took it in a format that plays on a PC but not on a Mac, so we've got to figure out the conversion there. But uh, you will, uh, I'm going to show these over the summer, chop, up, chop them up into 10, 15, 20-minute segments where possible and show them like at the end of Bible class on Tuesday and Thursday nights so people live streaming can see them. And people who are in class can can uh, see them as well. But in terms of some of the high points, the first day that we were there, we uh, spent the morning at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who sponsored the trip and who were the ones who paid for all of our expenses there in Israel. We were to provide for our own uh, airfare over there, and they covered everything else. There were 12 of us in our group. There were six pastors, and there were... Um, about six wives, or maybe there were seven pastors. I, the numbers are off a little bit. Of course, there was one pastor who was a woman, so that was. But maybe more than that, because some several of these came from sort of a Hispanic, charismatic, broad evangelical background where they have a, a husband and wife are considered pastors. But uh, I don't think the Lord considers women pastors, but that's another topic. Um, but they were all, we all had a good time. We all got along together. It was a tremendous, uh, a tremendous time. We went to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and during the morning we had five different speakers come sit down at a conference table and go through different areas of Israel's activities, involvement that covered the range of things from what they do for other nations as well as current issues related to Syria, Egypt, the so-called Arab Spring and, um, and Iran. Then we had lunch with the uh, Minister of Energy and Water Resources, who's a former director of Israel's Homeland Security. He's, I would say he's in his mid-70s. He is, uh, has his Ph.D. from MIT. He uh, has a, had an illustrious career in the IDF, uh, Israel's uh, army, and he, um, uh, he spoke just like Sean Connery. So, and he was—he uh, is a member of a political party that is to the right of the Likud. The Likud party is Netanyahu's party, and it is very conservative. And he's a member of a party to the right of that. So he was very conservative and right at home with our uh, with our group. Then uh, that was then the afternoon. We went to the Knesset, which is their parliament. We had a tour of the Knesset. We had uh, two two people come and speak to us. One was a, a woman who was a Knesset member who worked with the uh, uh, <clears throat> on a couple of committees dealing with the Christian minorities and other minorities within within Israel, and then Boogie Ayalon came and spoke to us. Everybody calls him Boogie. It's Moshe Ayalon. He's a retired commander in chief of the uh, IDF. He retired in 2005, 
and he is the Deputy Prime Minister of Israel, and he spoke to us for an hour, and that was just fabulous, just just incredible. He's also, um, I believe he's a member of the Likud Party, very, very conservative. And <clears throat> my impression, just my impression from, from what he, not from what he said, but his, his answers to some of the questions, uh, I would not be a bit surprised if Israel hadn't already made a decision to do something about Iran. Uh, this is that the threat with Iran is extremely serious in multiple levels, and we usually don't get exposed to most of those through any media outlets here, no matter uh, uh, what outlet it is. We just don't hear some of those some of those issues and some of those arguments. So that was the first day that night. We went to dinner. We went out to see a little uh, a light show they have in the city at the Tower or uh, Citadel of David, which was interesting. Came, typically, we got up and we were gone at 8 in the morning, and we got back around 11.30 or 12 at night. So it, they were long days. Then the next day, we went, to the, uh, we went to Yad Vashem in the morning, which was one of the most moving visits to a Holocaust museum that I've had. We were given a, a docent who took us through. I've never had a guided tour before. I've either rented the headsets and done that or just walked through and read things. But we were given one of their top docents who, incidentally, I've already secured to be our guide when our group goes through uh, in a couple of weeks. And she gets all the details when there are visiting dignitaries from various nations, when presidents come, when uh, for example, when the general staff of Germany comes down and goes through Yad Vashem, she's the one who takes them through. She just took a group of, of upper-level Chinese military officers through a, a couple of weeks ago, and that was just a, a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal walk, walk through uh, Yad, Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum there. And then uh, we went to Mount of Olives that afternoon and saw some other sites in the in the old city. And then on Wednesday we got up. We went to Caesarea by the Sea. We took uh, went on up through uh, the central part of uh, Israel, skirted uh, Samaria, went on up into Galilee, uh, and spent the night there. Then on Wednesday morning, I got up. I went jogging every morning, try to stay in shape a little bit and try to fight the jet lag. And this this uh, uh, kibbutz where we stayed was in Afghanistan. Some of you have been there with me. That's where they have the Jesus boat and the uh, little museum there to Yigael alone and the Palmach. And uh, it's and and when we got there and walked into the hotel at Afghanistan. As I was going in, the person on the other side who's pushing the door to come out was Arnold Fruchtenbaum. <laughs> it's always great to run into people like that. I run into every time I go to Israel, I run into different people that I know here and there. So we had a nice little visit with Arnold. But the next morning when I got up and I went for my run, I'm running through the little woods and everything, and there was an IDF patrol that was just crashing out after their night exercise. They've been on a land navigation exercise. <clears throat> and so I stopped and visited with them, got to talk to them about their, their uh, weapons that they were carrying, and there was one uh, young man there from Baltimore 
who uh, had uh, gone over there. He's a lone soldier. A lone soldier is someone serving the IDF who has no family in Israel. And we're going to try to have some lone soldiers come and eat dinner with us one night on our trip so that we can get to get to know them a little bit and find out about their service uh, in the IDF. He didn't. He was telling me he didn't know any Hebrew when he went over there. And so when he was going through basic basic training, he did a lot of push-ups. You know, the, <laughs> the sergeants would say, run, and he's there going, what? And okay, knock out 20 push-ups. So it took, that was great motivation to learn the language. It also got in shape. Maybe that's a way to apply, something to apply in regular education. Uh, and then later that day, we were taken up on the, uh, on the border. I could have thrown a rock and set off a landmine, uh, with Syria and spent about two hours with an IDF company that served right on the Syrian border. And that was just, just incredible to talk to those. Most of these guys are 18, 19, uh, 20. There was one young man there from New York who was also a lone soldier, and he was 20, 22 or 23. So we did that. Then we came back, did some other sites. That night we ate at a Druze village up on Mount Carmel. The man who hosted us was a member of Knesset, former ambassador and consul general, and uh, took us around, gave us a tour, and then we had we were hosted in a family's home for dinner, and you've never seen so much food. Then we ended up in Tel Aviv, and then the next day we got up, we went into Jerusalem, went to the Antiquities Museum, and uh, had a that was my second time because I went there with Randy Price the first day, and then we went to an underground ammunition factory that they that was completely secret, that they had uh, established in a kibbutz under the buildings uh, during the period from the end of World War II in 1945 to the beginning of the War for Independence in 1948 because they realized they were going to go to war and they needed ammunition. And, and, and under the British mandate, it was an automatic death penalty if you were Jewish and caught with a weapon, anything related to a weapon or ammunition. And so this was at the um, <clears throat> at this uh, one, one kibbutz. At Ayalon, where they now have the Ayalon Institute and Haim Weizmann Institute. And so I was able to video the entire, like, hour and 20 minutes of our guided tour through that location. And, and I did that in like 15 minute segments. So we'll be, all get to experience that. It was just, just incredible. And then I came home. But when I got there, I flew over a day early. I was picked up, landed about 9, almost 10 o'clock in the morning. We were a little late. My travel agent picked me up and took me to into Israel where I was able to hook up with uh, Randy Price. Now, for those of you who don't know Randy Price, uh, Dr. Randall Price is the chairman of the Jewish Studies Department at Liberty University. Randy and I first met the summer of 1970 when we were 17, 18 years old and working at Camp Penile. Little did we know how the years would go by and we would be in seminary together and we would ha- be colleagues in many different uh, ways. We would write things together, etc. down through the years. And he is a uh, really an accomplished archaeologist. And I didn't realize it, but out on the Qumran Plateau area, uh, that is, he, he's got eight squares he just opened. Uh, we were just opening up the day I was there. Uh, a square is 15 by well, double square, 15 by 20, and a double square is about 15 by 40. <clears throat> and you dig down, mark everything. And he's done 80. When he's done with this section, he will have done 90 percent of the Qumran plateau. 
And I think he's going to, I'm privy to some secret information that I can't share, but I think he'll find some interesting things this year. So we started off, I, I, I got there and it was, um, uh, we went through the museum, then uh, <clears throat> the old city, and then finally I got to bed about 10 o'clock that night, got up the next morning at 4 a.m. because it's hot down at Qumran, and so you want to get out there and start digging early. And so we were digging by 5 a.m., and we were just beginning to break ground, as you can see in the picture. So I worked a pickaxe for the first, for five hours. And that was, I was glad I was in shape. I'll just say that. Because he didn't have enough young, strapping high school boys to help out. Now that's him standing behind me. And the man kneeling down behind me is a Bedouin, Yusuf, Yusuf who has, who's part, the Bedouins that were helping us that Randy hired for this, uh, most of those are in the background behind him, uh, are members of the same tribe, the Tamar tribe, that, that first found the original scrolls uh, at Qumran. And Yusuf has been doing this for 40 years, so he probably knows as much about archaeology as anybody because he's the guy who's on the ground doing, doing that work. So he had also cooked uh, Bedouin breakfast for us that morning, and uh, everything was organic, grown by him, fixed by him, cooked by him. And so we had falafel and hummus and a couple of different kinds of goat cheese and olives and um, french fries, <laughs> scrambled eggs, uh, standard, uh, standard fare when, when you're in Israel. Now, here's a picture of uh, Randy and uh, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, he, the guy on the right is the Israeli archaeologist. Every dig has an Israeli archaeologist over the site, and he's quite accomplished and has done uh, uh, quite a bit, written a few books. And uh, here's a shot of Randy down on the ground uh, working, uh, doing a little more detail work. And then here's one sh- shot of me as we were going in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I'll show you more, more pictures later on. But today we need to get into the Word. So let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want to remind us of our context here as we get into Colossians that starting here, uh, starting actually back in chapter uh, 2, verse uh, 6, Paul gets into a more practical, personal application of the Word. It rises to a crescendo in the section from 2.2.6 down through uh, 3.11. He really lays the foundation for our Christian life and Christian walk, constantly going back to the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit that takes place at the instant of salvation. And at the instant of salvation, every single believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And at that instant, simultaneous with the baptism by means of God, the Holy Spirit, we are given all of these spiritual blessings I've mentioned already this morning, that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Nothing's been left out. God didn't drop something. You didn't miss out on something. God didn't forget to give you something even if you fell asleep. We all got it all. And, and what we have to do is learn what those blessings are so that we can live in light of those blessings. And that's really the focus here in in Colossians. But by the time we get down to verse 12, Paul is shifting gears as he does to draw a conclusion in terms of 
some behavioral mandates, behavioral mandates in terms of now that we understand who we are in Christ and what we have been given, that necessitates a change in certain uh, behaviors and certain activities. So he talks about this as we've, as I've covered in verses 12 through 14 in terms of putting on a, a new set of clothes, a new dress code that uh, we have for believers. Therefore, he says, as the elect of God, because we have been uh, chosen, selected by God on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone, uh, we are to live a certain way, put on tender mercies, uh, that is compassion, grace orientation. It was interesting on the trip that as I got to know some of the other pastors, there was one other pastor in the group that uh, was traveling without his wife, and he was from a small, uh, smaller city, small town, about 30 miles south of Albuquerque in New Mexico. And, of course, I did the obvious, and I got him, gave him contact information for George Meisner and Schaefer Seminary. But he made a comment to me. Um, I was going to say a long way into the trip, but thinking back, it wasn't even a long trip. It just seemed long. And he said, he, he he was sitting behind me, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, I, I, I really appreciate some of the things that you've said about grace. Of course, my mind's whirling at that point going, when did I say anything about grace? But apparently I commented on some things, and he picked up on that and, and, and uh, alerted to the fact that here was somebody who understood grace. And, of course, we're listening to our guide, who is a Jewish agnostic. He's Israeli. And he really doesn't understand, as most people do, they don't understand grace. And then we've also heard from our uh, uh, Druze friend about the Druze religion, which is also a works-based religion. Of course, Islam is a works-based religion. Judaism is a works-based religion. And so uh, some of the folks who were on the trip were getting a little tired of hearing about works, and he said it's just so refreshing to understand grace and that God has given us everything. God's provided everything. People just don't understand that it's everything. We don't do anything for anything. It's all ours. And I said, well, and I, we talked more about, uh, about grace and uh, the gospel, and he clearly had an understanding of the free grace gospel, that the gospel is not contingent either up front with anything that we do or in the sort of a subtle backdoor approach to uh, anything that is necessary for, in terms of behavior, for indicating that we are truly saved. And so that was, we had some good conversations, and and uh, that was an uh, enjoyable uh, friendship develop, uh, relationship to develop there. But this is what Paul's alluding to here, is grace orientation, tender mercies is, is this concept of an application of grace toward other people. And that, that fits all of these, kindness, the underlying attitude of humility and meekness, and long-suffering. It's interesting, you go on a trip like this where you're on a bus with 12 other people, most of whom you don't know. It's easy for somebody to get on somebody else's nerves, and you're living together very closely uh, for for most of the day. Now, on a typical tour, I always try to give people a break so they can get away and be, because everybody needs a little downtime. But we didn't have the luxury of having downtime on this kind of a compressed, uh, compressed tour. So you have to learn in relationships to just 
extend a little courtesy to others and to realize that we, part of love is putting up with other people's uh, idiosyncrasies and failures, and that's part of long-suffering. And then Paul says, as I pointed out, we do this by bearing with one another, putting up with one another, and forgiving one another. If, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Actually, that is the ligature, like a knot, the ligament of maturity. This is love is essential to reaching that ultimate destiny, uh, uh, goal, and spiritual growth of maturity. Then in verse 15 on the screen, Paul shifts again. He begins to use these these injunctions to us, a third-person type of imperative as opposed to a second-person imperative. We really don't have a third-person imperative in English, and it's the, the idea of let us do something, and it's really a command. It's not a suggestion. And he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts in which also you were called in one body and be thankful. So again, he's returning to that emphasis on the body of Christ And then he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell or dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now, this is going to be a a tremendous verse to get into because it shows that part of the result of letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly is that it produces or results in teaching and admonishing one another. But how? Note that next phrase. So we're going to have to talk about music again. We are to teach and admonish one another in hymns, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Just a preview of what we'll be getting to, we should note that the purpose of singing is an entertainment. It's not just to sing for singing's sake, but it is through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that the body of Christ learns and admonishes one another. It is an aspect of teaching and correction. And if singing isn't accomplishing that because of the words and the kind of music, then it's a complete failure and it's not spiritual. So we'll have a couple of weeks special on that. And then Verse 17 states, whatever you do, which covers everything in life, there's no area left untouched. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father through him. So gratitude is to permeate everything. And then from verse 18 on, there are various uh, commands and instructions to different segments of the body of Christ, to wives, to husbands, to children, to parents, to servants or slaves, actually, and to, to masters. And concluding with verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. And so we're going to get into a, another sub-series on uh, the impact of the Word of God on your family and your marriage. So this is going to be a, a great summer because we're going to be addressing several specific topics in terms of some uh, short sub-series as we deal with the application of these particular uh, particular passages. And then the concluding part of this chapter in verses 24 
and 25 takes us back to the whole issue of inheritance, inheritance for the believer, and that the motivation in the Christian life is not negatively by the fear of losing salvation, but the reality that we serve the Lord and we are motivated, and there's nothing wrong with that motivation, toward rewards for service. God uses both a carrot and a stick, and the carrot involves inheritance and rewards, and there are will be distinctions in at the judgment seat of Christ between those who have served the Lord and those who have served themselves. And we only have those two options in life. You are either living your life in service to God or you're living your life in service to the Lord. And sometimes as we grow and mature, there's a little bit more of one uh, than the other. But the ultimate goal is this goal of serving the Lord. And we can serve the Lord in many different capacities. One of the first has to do with our area of spiritual gift. Now, you may not know your area of spiritual gift. You don't have to know your spiritual gift in order to serve in the capacity of your spiritual gift because some spiritual gifts are broad categories such as serving or leadership or or, or, or teaching. I think that can be manifest in a lot of different ways in Sunday school, prep school, or even uh, outside the church in some different activities. But there are many different ways in which people can serve in the local church manifesting the gift of service, everything from uh, uh, p- playing the organ to uh, being in a leadership position such as being a deacon to cooking, providing for things like that, uh, prayer. All of these different things can be part of a broader general uh, spiritual gift uh, of serving, but as long as we're growing as believers, we're going to manifest something in terms of our spiritual gift, and you don't have to know it in order to do it. Uh, I always teach this with the analogy of a young person growing up just normally, naturally. Everybody has certain physical talents as well as uh, intellectual abilities. And as you as a parent can identify with this, or maybe even a, a, as a child growing up, that as you go out and you explore different things that you can do, whether you, when I was growing up, I had piano lessons and band lessons and this and that and the other thing, and those kinds of things for children give them opportunities to explore capabilities, things uh, develop interests, things that they might be interested in and excel in. And as you grow and mature, you gravitate to the areas where you have strengths and you tend to stay away from things uh, where you have have weaknesses. And the same thing is true in your Christian life. And so you may be in like a spiritual adolescent and not really know what your spiritual gift is, but you're probably already using it, manifesting it in some area. There's nothing that says you have to know your spiritual gift in order to use it. What is essential is what I've touched on the last couple of lessons is the mental attitude that underlies all spiritual growth. And that mental attitude is one of humility that usually crystallizes in some sense in a person's growth in a realization that, that they have been saved for a purpose and that their spiritual life is not just another elective option in their life, but it is the main thing. And this is indicated in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So let's turn to Romans 12, 1 and 2. I've taught on this some the last couple of lessons, and I want to add a few uh, additional insights to this 
as a foundation for understanding what Paul is getting at in Colossians 3. With this whole series of commands, he is talking about what the believer is to do and how this is to manifest in his service to God. So he begins 12.1 with the statement, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. The therefore indicates this is a conclusion, as I pointed out last last time, from all that he has said in those first uh, 11 chapters of, of Romans. This is a word that is standard for Paul. He uses it many times. It, it really has the idea of urging someone to a course of action, challenging them to a course of action, uh, pushing them in a certain direction. So I would translate it, I challenge you, therefore, brethren, and <clears throat> by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So I think somewhere along the line, here we go. I um, dropped out a slide, got it in the wrong order this morning, but the phrase, by the mercies of God, is in the panel on the right, and it has this idea of the means or the instrument or the way in which something is accomplished. We often hear the phrase that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Well, this an instrumental clause talks about the way in which something is done. And in this phrase, by the mercies of God, what Paul is expressing is that he is, that, that the way this is accomplished is through the grace of God, on the basis of the grace of God, not on the basis of our own human effort, our own human endeavor. A lot can be counterfeited uh, by the works of the flesh. There's a lot of, of excellent moral, ethical people in the world and religions that emphasize morality and ethics but know nothing of the grace of God. They emphasize a religion where people are pulling themselves up by their own ethical bootstraps, and it has nothing to do with the Spirit of God. And so for a, at a certain level, it's like the Egyptian uh, magicians who could imitate the uh, miracles of, of Moses, but at one point they could no longer imitate those miracles that Moses, uh, the judgments that Moses brought upon the Egyptians. So the spiritual life that we live is on the basis of a walk by means of God, the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who works in and through us to produce a character change, transformational change, but he only does that through uh, the Word of God. So Paul says here on the basis of what he has taught, and remember in Romans in the first 11 chapters, he's talking about how can a human being be justified before God. His answer is that God does everything, and all we do is accept it. Grace is the foundation for everything Paul says in those first 11 chapters. And so on the basis of understanding Everything that's been said in those first 11 chapters and understanding the grace of God, he says, on that basis now, we are to do something. And that is, we are to present ourselves to God. Par istemi, a word that is used with various shades of meaning many times in the Greek as an aorist active infinitive here in the way this is structured, it is, has an imperatival sense. So it is, uh, it's an expression of a mandate. It, it, this isn't an option for the Christian life. But there's a lot of different things and abuses of this idea down through uh, the history of Christianity. 
One that is one, uh, one that is common to many of us is the idea of uh, walking the aisle, dedication, raising your hand, something like this in churches. Uh, this is something. This is not really an application of this word. It's not a one-shot decision. It is a decision that uh, involves thought. It involves something that uh, precedes the decision, where you are preparing. Uh, being prepared to make that decision, then you make a decision, and then after you you sort of have this wake-up call that my life is really about serving the Lord, then you have to sort of re-engage that decision for the rest of your life. At any moment after that, you can say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. And you go AWOL spiritually. There's a lot of similarity here. This is a word that has the idea... Uh, of offering, it's often used in terms of offering a sacrifice. Now, a sacrifice, listen closely, a sacrifice is not always sacrificial. What I mean by that is that often people think of the word sacrifice as something that, that for it to be sacrificial, I, I've got to feel the pain of giving something up. But if you're focused on the Lord, you never feel that as a, as a negative. You want to give something to somebody, obviously you're going to forestall something for yourself. But if you're focused on them, you never really focus on what you're giving up. You're willing to give this to somebody else. That's your, that's your focus. So it, it has the idea of presenting, giving, or, or providing something for someone else. And in the context here, what we're doing is we are offering our lives in service to God. The verse goes on to say, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, before we get into a fuller development of that, I want to back up a slide to show that this word, paristemi, is fundamental to Paul's thinking already. In Romans 6.13, he said, Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but instead present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, that you are that one's slaves whom you obey. See, you're either going to present yourself to your own sin nature to serve yourself or you're going to present yourself to God. Those are the only two options that any of us have. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He says, if you present yourselves to your sin nature, to be, a, then you become a slave to your sin nature. Or if you present yourself to the service of God, then that leads to righteousness. That is, in the context, experiential righteousness in terms of spiritual growth. Romans 6.19, Paul says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you, as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, that is, prior to salvation, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, that's in terms of your physical body, your entire life, as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That's the same exact idea we get over here in Romans 12.1, that we are to present our bodies, our members, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. 
Now, this idea of presenting ourselves is the idea of presenting ourselves in service. Since today is Memorial Day, there is a great analogy for us in the life of a soldier who is serving his country. That's the key connection. When a young person, now today men and women, reach a certain age, they have the option of in our culture of deciding whether or not they're going to serve in the military. There's a lot of thought that goes into that decision. Just as, we, as we're growing as believers initially, there's a time period when we put thought into uh, our own decision to serve the Lord. Uh, one person put it this way as they were sitting in Bible class after several months. Now, one day it suddenly dawned on them that what the pastor was talking about when he talked about positive volition and studying the word was that I have to commit my life to this. I have to make a choice as to whether this is going to be, my life is going to be about learning the word and applying it, or my life is going to be about something else. And it was like one of those moments when uh, you just have a blinding flash of the obvious, and you wake up to realize that God really is get, putting that choice before us. Is that our priority? Is our life about serving God, or is our life about serving ourselves? And so in terms of my analogy, the young person comes to a decision point and decides that they feel they have the obligation as a member of their nation to serve their nation in the military. And so they take themselves down and present themselves to the recruiter. Uh, This is a presentation that is physical, but it's been preceded by a lot of thought, and the decision has already been made uh, mentally before the physical decision of of going to the uh, the recruiter. But that's followed up by day-to-day decisions to continue with that service and to serve the nation. In the same way, the believer has to make a decision to serve God on a moment-by-moment basis. And that service is as much a sacrifice in serving God as it is for a soldier. Now, a soldier doesn't think of it as sacrifice. There are few soldiers in boot camp who are thinking that I'm here to serve my country and I'm going to give my life for my country. Most young people who are serving don't think they, they, they think they're invincible. They don't think that they're the one who they're the one that's going to die. It's going to be someone else who's going to die and someone else who's going to be wounded. But they're there to serve their country. That's the positive aspect of this. So there's not a sense of oh I'm here to sacrifice and to give up. But they are. They're giving up a certain amount of uh, options and entertainment or whatever that their peers are having because they understand there's a higher purpose, a higher goal, and that has greater value than whatever uh, personal pleasure uh, they might get out of not serving uh, their country. The soldier doesn't consider the things that he's not doing, doesn't focus on that. He's focusing instead on what he is doing for his country and his service uh, to his country. He's not focusing on the fact that he might, might give his life, but certainly at some level he knows that, that may, it may uh, come to that. And you see the Apostle Paul uses this same imagery in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and 3. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 3, he addresses Timothy specifically 
in relationship to his role as a pastor. But this doesn't, this also applies to any believer in the Christian life. He says to Timothy in verse three, you therefore must endure hardship. This is the uh, Greek word, soon kakapatheo, which indicates a harsh suffering. You're going to miss out on things. It may be a passive suffering where there are just certain benefits or certain aspects of affluence or uh, creature comforts that uh, you're going to miss out on, but it also may involve a much more active hostility and opposition and maybe even persecution. And Paul, all of that is included in this word. So Paul says, you must endure hardship. It's an aorist imperative. You must endure, you have to have this mental attitude that you are going to face whatever comes in life because the higher goal is you're serving the Lord and whatever that costs, that's irrelevant. He then expands on the analogy in verse four. Uh, he says, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare. We're all engaged in spiritual warfare. Whether you are active or whether you are AWOL, you're still involved in spiritual warfare. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Now, Paul isn't saying that this means that you shouldn't participate in a in a retirement plan or that you shouldn't be aware of what's going on in, in the political sphere because that's also part of our roles and responsibilities, but it doesn't become a distraction. It's not something that uh, is to interfere with our understanding of our true purpose and goal and for the reason that God has, has saved us. He says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as his soldier. The ultimate governing uh, rule is that we are there to serve the nation. If you're a soldier or in the uh, spiritual life, it's about serving God. It's all about him. It's not about me. He then shifts to a second metaphor in verse 5. Using the athletic metaphor, he says, also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So he's using a different analogy there, but it's the same thing. We have to understand that if we're going to compete and win, or if we're going to truly serve and uh, serve the Lord, serve in the military, serve in any capacity, then we have to set aside our own desires, our own wants, our own agenda for someone else. That's what uh, this means. So when we look at uh, Romans 12, uh, 12.1, again, we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. We are serving God. It's not that we're some sort of mortar, martyr walking around going, oh, I'm serving God. That's not the idea. We are, it's, it's, it's life. And that's where real life exists is in the service of God. And we present our bodies, the totality of who we are every day, holy, that is set apart to the service of God, acceptable to him, which is our reasonable service. And that word is the word latreia, which indicates service or worship. But we're serving God. That is why, uh, why we are here. And then he gives us the way to do this in verse 2, which we've covered many times, not to be conformed to the world. So we have to be involved in a cleaning out ceremony. You've been storing up a lot of, uh, you've been a real pack rat 
uh, mentally with a lot of garbage in your soul, and we have to get rid of that. All that garbage comes from the world system, the culture around us, and we have to, uh, we've been in a position where we've been constantly conforming to the world standards, and we have to change that modus uh, operandi. And the way to do that is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're transformed through the content of the word. We're not transformed by serving God. See, in a lot of churches, they get that backwards. First thing they want to do when you come into church is let's give you something to do so we'll uh, get you committed to our church. The key issue is you've got to first have your thinking transformed before you start uh, to be effective at serving God. So we have to quit being conformed to the world and then be transformed by the renewing, the complete uh, renovation of our thinking that you may prove, that is to demonstrate something in our life that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that takes us back to what's going to happen in Colossians 3.15. The next command, and there's a series of commands related to letting the peace of God rule in our hearts, letting the word of God richly dwell within us, and each of these categories is going to take us to a at least one or two uh, lessons in understanding what these things mean and how it is to uh, transform our thinking. So we'll come back next time and get into Colossians 3.15 so that we can try to understand what it means to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. We'll start there next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon your word to be reminded that we're saved to serve. We're saved first and foremost to serve you, and we do that uh, by having our thinking changed, thinking overhauled, just as a soldier goes to boot camp to learn how to be properly oriented to military service. So we have to go to your word in order to learn to think in terms of how we serve you and how we are to think as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that for each one here that, uh, they would recognize that this is a challenge to them, that to the degree of the level of our service to you. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He paid the penalty for your sin. And so that all you have to do is to accept that as a free gift. There's no strings attached. There's uh, uh, nothing you have to do to merit it, to earn it, to keep it. It is a free gift. God gives it to us, and he will never take it away from us. Father, we pray that you would make this so clear to anyone here who needs to trust in Christ as Savior, who is in need of eternal life, that they might have that uh, clearly clear understanding that all that is involved is believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.